to the very first Fintech Insider News of 2018, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork London. My name's Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, Mr. David Breer. How are you, sir? Yeah, very well. I'm um, slowly piecing back what was my life before Christmas. <laughs> there was the too much cheese, remember. wasn't there? There, there was, was a lot of cheese. Like We definitely got into that routine of about sort of quarter to ten every night deciding that it was time for sort of amaretti and cheese which um is really quite a hard drug to get off i have to say i always thought amaretti and coke was the drink that's a weird drink you've been having you should try it don't knock it amaretti and cheese you heard it here first um benedict chagog benedict how are you sir i'm all right simon surfacing as well from christmas slowly but surely uh and andra snare andra how are you i'm very well thank you good to have you back you had a very large jacket it is so windy outside yes i was anchoring myself <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the jacket anchored by a jacket that's uh, that's a good way to be so how's your first week back been that was easy for me to say uh, I, th- I think mainly experiencing what you're doing now trying to connect my brain <laughs> and my mouth kind of all week has yeah, been that's, that's, somewhat of a struggle that's really a struggle for, throughout my entire life <laughs> my <friend. laughs> This is what it's like to be Simon for a week, but no, it's 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 been good. But entertaining first week back. I like. I was already planning on what I'm doing on Saturday tomorrow, and it's Thursday, so like the, I've almost just no concept of what time or day it actually is. Which it's is a short, it's a short week. It's a short week, but it feels like a long one, right? After you've been used to having a lay in for a while, suddenly like a four day actually doing work seems like a lot. So, uh, but good. Christmas did did Santa come for everybody? Yeah, yeah. As usual, I mean, <laughs> what what wrong with being at home uh, in your pajamas and eating um, <laughs> Far too cakes much. and chocolate? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I vote for that every day, quite frankly. That would be nice. Santa was awesome. I had probably the best Christmas I've had in a long time. Really? Santa was really good. Santa bought me a Mario game. Wow. And, like, that's just as good as Santa gets. So, How Santa, if you're listening, thank you. Um, let's get started with this week's news, guys. Um, first story is one in City AM, but this was everywhere. This is about, uh, well, the US government stepping in and preventing... Uh, Alibaba's Ant Financial from uh, bidding 1.2 billion to take over MoneyGram. So the authorities refused to back a deal. Um, apparently, it was the Committee on Foreign Investments, the CFIUS, which is a catchy title, uh, refused to support the takeover between the two leading uh, companies. Uh, the bid was rejected due to national security concerns. How do we how do we feel about this one? Ah, oh, this seems weird, doesn't it? Um, I, I think this is probably sort of a bit of a um, slight sort of dent in the armour of um, Alibaba's kind of march into the rest of the, the sort of planet, doesn't it? But um, I, the idea that this has been put down as, as national security concerns of why they've actually rejected it seems quite terrifying to me. But I don't think this is going to stop them, does it? This is probably the, the, um, the, the full stop for a little while, but they'll either um, go and actually make something now rather than trying to buy something else, and that's pretty much unstoppable, isn't it? It's rare you see geopolitics play, play out in such an obvious moment in finance quite so obviously in the press. It's always happening behind the scenes, but it's rare you see it. I don't know. With everything that's been happening with Trump over the last kind of 18 months, we should be reasonably... Hey, like, this shouldn't be too... He's he's probably the guy who was somewhere involved, said that, said no, right? So, uh, well, well, this was actually the Committee on Foreign Investment, and apparently there are, there are views that it's... Uh, 
to do with some of the data that might be available and, and corporate espionage as a worry about um, state-sponsored hacking um, and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And can, visibility into flow of uh, money is a major geopolitical tool when you're considering things like sanctions. It's one thing to not be able to have that over a nation state like China's internal affairs, but somebody like MoneyGram, uh, there's so many remittances and so much corporate uh, flow going through something like MoneyGram. Uh, you can see why people might have a concern. I, James Lloyd, friend of the show, shout out to James, uh, was quoted in the Wall Street Journal saying, building your own network is considerably harder than buying one. Uh, and also that uh, he wouldn't say there's a lot of assets out there that you can buy for such a, a network like MoneyGram. Do you have thoughts on this one, Andrew? Um, I was wondering what what um, Alibaba's interest in um, in in MoneyGram and if actually they can buy something else. So m- my guess, my first guess would have been um, that um, it, it's about Africa, uh, where China is very much present, but um, there there are very few um, tools, financial tools for uh, transferring money between Africa and uh, and China, and there are lots of small businessmen and you know um, small amounts and, and things like that. So would, I think it would have been uh, a good fit for for uh, and financial. And I don't think they will give up. Probably they will look for something else, but I don't know what More of a hiccup. Mm. Uh, the Chinese have been uh, very proud of their Bricks and Road initiative, which is um, following the, the example of the old Silk Road, which is how do you uh, spread economic influence throughout the world uh, by investing in thing, in infrastructure. And, and there, this is an example of financial infrastructure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Physical infrastructure, which is not easy to, to build. It takes uh, people on the ground to build the, the, this mm, type of thing. Yeah, the MoneyGram acceptance is up there with uh, Western Union. It's, it's yeah. one of those places where people can go to a physical site and, and receive money from abroad yeah. and so on. But what's more interesting, though, seeing MoneyGram do this from, uh, sorry, seeing Alipay do this from scratch, mm-hmm. if they're forced to not be able to take on some old-fashioned remittance network, it's more exciting for us to be able to see them do like their own thing. People have been trying to crack payments in Africa for, for a number of years now. And we see, uh, obviously, the Zampesha did really well. Um, but a uh, good friend of the show, uh, Costa Peric, has talked about the Gates program, uh, the Gates Foundation's Level 1 project. Where, um, and they had uh, an, a lot of work going into how do they actually extend that into a set of... Uh, Getting, it, getting these APIs between telcos to interoperate because actually you've got Safaricom and Vodacom and a whole bunch of telcos that have their own little networks, but they don't talk to the central banks, that don't talk to the rest of the world, that they all have their own agent networks. If you could connect all of that up, surely that would work. And it's a very different world to what we see in Europe or the US or even in China. Uh, it's, it's a different model. And it seems like from the West or from the East, Neither has been able to move in successfully, um, but I know that uh, both sides would, would love dearly to, to, to run the payments there. All right, moving on. Next story. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a few actually um, bucketed together under the theme of open banking, which uh, tis the season for open banking. Uh, 13th of January, waiting with bated breath. Um, the BBC, there's a story here um, saying why new rules threaten the very survival of traditional banks. Love, love a dramatic headline. Well done, the Beeb. Uh, David, what's going on here? Dun, dun, dun. So exactly like you say, I think open banking is going to be the thread probably through the entirety of this year with regards to all the interesting things that are coming on, both for people doing smart things with it, but also maybe continually the incumbents maybe not quite getting there with what they should be doing. Um, we've already seen Barclays, RBS, HSB, Santander and Bank of Ireland 
been asked uh, asked for a long extension with the deadline for open banking, which is kind of interesting given it sort of came out quite late, didn't it? It was kind of the my dog's at my homework kind of uh, <laughs> feel to it. But um, but it was my the dog has eaten all of our homeworks together. Yeah. So if everyone says they can't meet the deadline, then they can get away with it. There isn't a deadline. Yeah, that's um, pretty meta right there. But um, but this is maybe somebody coming out and giving more of a uh, you know a realistic view of the world. So this is Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank Group's chief executive David Duffy coming out and saying mm, this might be the end of some big organisations, which I, I kind of find quite refreshing because it's quite an alternative to the la 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 everything is fine. You know, this isn't happening. It'll all go away. Type kind. Of processes that we've heard from many of the other executives just too much of that isn't there <laughs> yeah i i, I think uh, the the title is um exaggerated um you know the, Great the, the survival, <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean but surely the deadline is here um everybody was hoping that it's not everybody's banks were hoping that uh, somehow it will not happen in uk we had this let's say, challenge or maybe not, maybe help that the uh, local regulator uh, initiated uh, open banking separately from PSD2. Uh, so some some banks took open banking, which was a bit more defined than PSD2, and they went ahead with it. So if you look at banks in, in other parts of, of Europe where they didn't have the open banking and they were expecting the technical requirements from uh, PSD2, they were in um, more confusion and uh, even more behind than, um, than our banks here. So even if they would be ready, this would mean not the demise of the of the banks. We would see uh, for sure more more fintechs um, um, of the of the new type enabled by by this new regulation and new ways of of um, you know doing banking for people. Not not new to to us, but at scale. I mean, uh, but. There are things behind, uh, <laughs> you know, these uh, these applications um, enabled by open banking, and they are still with banks. It's interesting to see you talking about the opportunities of of what could be enabled. It's interesting to hear an executive say the cost of not doing it could be significant, yeah. because there's there's a lot of big banks that you named there, David, that were like uh, ignore it and it might go away, and that sort of worked to a certain degree. Well, uh, and at least um, at least do the bare minimum to adhere to the regulation like everybody has always done with pretty much anything that's kind of come along. So I kind of feel like what he's saying here is probably right. You know, the traditional banks, in inverted commas for everybody who's listening to the podcast, um, probably does start to get broken down. You know, we've seen marketplace banking and actually everything that surrounds that, not just being about financial services products, but about your electricity and everything else that can kind of go with it. So what is a traditional bank might sort of start to cease to exist. I do think if we you know, play it forward. And there's always the the kind of constant sort of dialogue on this one about whether it's a, whether you want to be the utility or whether you want to be the distributor of the utilities. Um, in the instance where banks start to become a bit more subservient to people who are better at distribution, then actually, I think that's a slippy slope, quite frankly. I always kind of look at any industry where that's happened. It's never ended very well for the incumbents who haven't woken up to operationalizing much more cost efficiently the, the things that that they do and banks are just notoriously bad at doing cost efficient processes so 
I don't know where that came from. I'll be honest with you. I think in between the cheese, it all kind of came yeah, out. You just blacked out from <laughs> the yeah. yeah. back in the room. Oh wow! No, no, precisely. But no, but you're far than old school. It was. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're you're right. When um, other industries start to decompose uh, in the, in this way, it's not just one piece uh, goes away and the rest remains as it was. The whole uh, the whole industry is changing. So okay. we will see more movements of this this type, uh, and I don't think they will be necessarily triggered by regulation. They will be followed. By regulation, so open banking is not just a theme in Europe. It's happening in Asia. It's happening in, in the US, and it's more market driven. Yeah, like everywhere we're talking to people, yeah. people are getting excited about actually what does this mean, and the eventual wave of our regulators in various different countries catching up with what's happening in Europe, which is exciting. You know? uh, and it's exciting because then, the, the, as Andrew said, it's the fintechs that that can grab this, but it it, it might have to be the fintechs that sells it to consumers because uh, there's a story submitted to fintech inside news.com by emily jane uh, from altfi uh, saying consumer awareness of open banking is at a major low um so what what does a major low mean benedict <laughs> uh a major low means 92 percent of people haven't even heard of open banking so not great what are we nine but days do i need to hear of it like do, do do i need to know what it is to like do i need to know how netflix works and and the regulations that run on the internet or do i just need to care that there's this service that's kind of cool uh but i think but the problem is we're just talking about all of these banks dragging their heels just ticking boxes but if you haven't even heard of the benefits mm. Then who cares that five of the banks aren't going to meet the it's first? One of those things. Don't tell me. Show me. Like, don't tell me what the benefits are. Just like put an iPhone in my hand and I've got a touch screen. Now I know what it is. Don't tell me what a touch screen is in two thousand and seven. Did right? you just praise an iPhone then? That was weird, dude. Like, like are you okay? Two thousand and seven. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cast your mind back to two thousand and seven. Everybody's saying, "Oh, Blackberries are fantastic. I like a physical keyboard." And then suddenly somebody plays like Fruit Ninja for the first time. They're like, "I'm never having a Blackberry ever again." Like, it's just how these things go. Small things, but no, I, I, th- I think it is interesting. I, I think it is as a good point, though, Benedict. It's like actually, if ninety-two percent of people haven't heard of it because banks aren't making it obvious, then who is it who's actually going to be sort of pushing this stuff forward? Is it going to be the people who are actually creating the services that are maybe going against some of the traditional banking stuff that's yeah, happening? So, third parties. I, I think the 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 danger is that <clears throat> until now, cost, uh, consumers were um, fed this type of uh, narrative. You shouldn't discuss your banking with anybody else in your bank. You shouldn't dis- disclose your user, password, uh, data, and, and so on. And all of a sudden, it will be allowed that you share your banking data with others. And this is news. This is a, this is a change, you know. And the danger is that people will st- kind of find this information by themselves and will start sharing this with, I don't know, uh, untrusted uh, third-party providers, how they will differentiate. Oh. Um, and the crossover with GDPR there is phenomenal because also I've shared my data with a third party and I want to be able to revoke it, but I didn't necessarily have a relationship with that third party. The only relationship I have with them is through my bank or my banking app. So how do I revoke it? How do I have control over it? There's a lot of these things that uh, if they've been thought through, they're just like a question, which means we go slower, which is what happens in big banks, or it's something somebody hasn't really just designed that experience yet. Um, but the opportunity side of it, I think is phenomenal from the new experiences. And, and we're already seeing it. I mean, Starling won the Pulse Award for um, kind of um, best marketplace banking. It's live. It's here today. It's live with only a small handful of things, though. 
hopefully this is going to be the year where we see that launch and go why with loads of live with everything like this is the thing it has to be live with a few more than two or three things if this is the big result of open banking you know i know starling move very fast on a lot of things but they better be doing something in the next couple of quarters but we we've seen it with you know revolut as well and actually you know monzo have started doing it with the um the switching of um electricity provider you know i think we're definitely scratching the surface but actually i think this will start to snowball now really i think now that we've got the technical ability to actually aggregate these things into transactional behavior look to sort of nudge and change behavior like the whole thing around banking and actually owning you know owning that day-to-day engagement with the customer i think the power of that is going to get greater and greater and greater we've been talking about and i know that you like all your hairs on the back of your neck when everybody says data is the new oil android it's, <laughs> it's like a it's like a like a spark like red flag to a bull thing but like i kind of think banks haven't been materially making the most of all of this data for decades they, they didn't have they didn't make anything at all with yeah. that data but it was uh, in 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 my experience with with the banks it was restricted by regulation so even if you work in a bank you were not allowed to analyze the data for the purpose of your work so you you could see banks who wouldn't analyze the data not even for the purpose of marketing which would be, which would be uh, ridiculous so it, it, it's a it's a the security of this data the privacy of this data the uh, access to this data only for the purpose of the transaction that uh, the third party need to enable these are still um, uh, problems uh, which are still not solved and um, I think the rest of the world looks at Europe and UK to, to see how we will solve this and they will take a shorter a shorter path I think uh, this is the interesting thing though I think when people say regulation it's not always regulation it's maybe your compliance department that's saying it's regulation and actually if you talk to the regulator they're pretty cool with this listeners you couldn't see this but i just like lost my shit with how awesome that (laughs) statement was because it's so true right it's not the regulator because when you talk to the regulator they just want to see that you're protecting consumers and there are a lot of arbitrary rules that have grown up inside large organizations um and the large organization talks to itself for 100 hours before it talks to the outside world for 10 minutes and i think that sort of um echo chamber inside an organization is dangerous because it's not delivering the right outcomes for customers having a lot of compliance people and having great compliance aren't the same thing yeah but i i think uh when we say regulator the regulator to who turns and talks with the bank is not the regulator that we see at innovate finance you know with the, and, yeah, and enforcement so it, and policy are different yeah. I, I i completely understand that but i do believe that there are opportunities to design things the right way. Um, and actually, that the way that, uh, again, the echo chamber tends to work is start with the wrong question first. So let's ask the legal question before we figure out what the proposition is, or we know what the technology is. And let's worry about the minutiae before we... And so what you do when you design products in that way is you lose the ability to design a customer proposition that really meets customer needs and meets the needs of regulations. And if you show somebody a working prototype with 10 customers using it saying they like it you can start to work through things in a different way versus this paper exercise that lasts 18 months there's a load of spreadsheets sitting behind it but nobody's actually done anything i i, I, I agree and i don't want to 
be in a position where I defend the banks. Yeah, where I defend the banks, you know. um, It's just that when you read, when you really read the PSD2 and the uh, technical um, standards for PSD2, you feel sorry for the bank. It's such, it's uh, it's so badly written. I completely agree with that. And uh, the the mess we are looking at uh, uh, on the market right now, it's also due to that. I mean, uh, the PSD2 enters in force uh, in January uh, 13, and the technical standards have been published in November. Uh, mm-hmm. And until then, they were still discussing, oh, should we allow screen scrapping? I mean, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, Don't get me wrong, Andrew. I completely agree. The way in which this regulation has been brought about is a mess. The way in which you can grasp this nettle, though, is to do what the fintech banks have done, which is pick a couple of partners, build a customer proposition that works, figure out the answer and show the regulator what the answer is, rather than wait for it and try and kick the can down the road. I completely agree. I think we referred to it a bunch like six months ago. It's that whole Chris Rock thing. Like I think PSD2, open banking, is just like a bunch of stuff banks should have been doing, and now they've been regulated into having to do it and that's kind of like the sad thing really is that they're now being pushed into something that they should have done anyway which is kind of opening up and providing all of these services even if they were just providing APIs internally to ensure that their development processes were actually effective in terms of what they were doing and now that they have to do that now they're having a big problem actually delivering on the deadlines I completely agree it's like you know giving two months to do anything in a bank is difficult that's like you know you're four months shy of requirements gathering, quite frankly, you know. So, but but being in a situation where saying man, a regulator having to mandate to a banking organization that you have to have a standard practice thing that should be in your organization from a technological perspective anyway is like that's you know yes we look at Europe as an innovative thing for having it, but actually it's quite a sorry state of affairs anyway, isn't it? It is. Right. I'm going to move to this story here as well from uh, submitted to Fintech Insider News by uh, Emeka Onwu. Uh, Emeka, big uh, contributor to Fintech Insider News. So shout out to Emeka. Um, stories on Wired. And it was written by Dave Birch, who's been on the show a number of times and is well known to many of you. He says, forget banks. In 2018, you'll pay through Amazon and Facebook anyway. David? We love Dave Birch, don't we? So uh, 2nd of January popped up in uh, Twitter and I, and I kind of went through this one. Like, yes, I can see this for sure. You know, like the, the Googles, Apples, Facebooks, etc. Of, of the world and, and everything that's happening with Tencent and Badoo. You know, do they have the potential to, uh, what was the slogan that we used earlier on, traditional banks, kind of replacing traditional banks? Absolutely. And I think for, you know, mainstream wired audience, I think this kind of makes total sense because actually all of the services that the you know, the, the, the big players, whether it be in the, the social or the retail space, uh, are doing are going to be light years ahead of where actually it is that the, the big retail banking organizations actually are. I, I kind of think the thing that's probably missing on this one, and, and Dave, you know, I love you, so uh, take this with the uh, good intentions that it is, is that actually banks are kind of changing quite dramatically. I think against, a, you know, an RBS or a HSBC, yes, that makes sense. But against like an N26 or a Revolut or a Monzo, then actually the new breed of banks that are coming through through kind of have all of this these types of services really sort of built into it so the argument really is 
about social. It's not really about whether it's a an Alipay or a um, an Amazon thing, because I don't think they really factor into that. If it's a WeChat or a Facebook thing, then yes, I get it. And, and I think about um, an N26, a Revolut, a Monzo, and any of those. Do they see uh, a customer paying through Facebook and then using their API as a threat or an opportunity? I think they see it more as an opportunity. Sure. Does an incumbent bank see it more as a threat or an opportunity? I think they see it more as a threat, because they have this idea of customer ownership. I The customer comes through my channel. I own my customer. They are mine. They belong to me, which I think is a, is an, uh, is a very 90s way of looking at customer ownership. Whereas actually in this day and age, customers have lots of different platforms and you have to go to them in lots of different places. Having uh, APIs, having modules, having that capability to be where the customer is actually allows you to retain that customer and be a part of their life and in a bigger way. Bizarrely, this is like the bit of PSD2 that people kind of don't talk about a lot, which is actually distributing your services as a banking organization through the channels that actually people are using. Like yeah. That just seems like the most obvious thing of, like, we're good where we are, we've got this base, we're doing great, how can we borrow other people's communities to distribute our services through? It just makes total sense, doesn't People it? look at tech in isolation. They look at, how do I do a chatbot? What should I do with AI? What, rather than that, why, what's the proposition that that customer needs? So, right, I've got social available to me. What's that data telling me about that customer's needs, wants, and desires? How can I build a profile about them to figure out how I can be helpful? Facebook's um, kind of AI, the M thing that keeps popping up that tries to predict, oh, you've mentioned a date. Maybe you want to organize something with a calendar. Oh, you've said the word love. Here's some hearts or whatever. Like, because uh, I do love my mum. God bless her. And so the- I thought that was my messages yeah. <laughs> right. uh, but those tools and capabilities it's thinking about that end-to-end customer journey as jason always says um all right i gotta move us to the next story um there's another little regulation that's been out recently andrew so um a mifid 2 um so there's a story in quartz.com uh, what is mifid 2 europe's sweeping financial regulations which began yesterday i believe um so the uh, to, to break that down, it's the Markets in Financial Instruments Directive 2. Um, means firms dealing in shares, bonds, commodities, and derivatives must now report detailed information on trillions of euros in transactions. Uh, the aim was to increase transparency and bolster investor protection to avoid some of the problems of the financial crisis. So, you know, uh, 10 years on, hmm? we, we're starting to get somewhere. Uh, Andrew, did you have any views on this one? Uh, yeah, I, I looked at it with um, with interest. Especially, I, I, I like to see how um, people react to to such uh, regulations. So this is a so all the regulation about transparency is about documenting more what you do. So we are looking here at trades, which are high volumes, uh, happen electronically and on phone. Uh, there are lots of ways of doing this. Uh, however, it requires some power <laughs> and some money to enable a mechanism to uh, document uh, everything to such a degree of, of detail and to store it and to access which it. Which adds costs, to, surely. Which uh, adds add costs uh, uh, for sure. Uh, there is another piece of MIFID too, which relates to uh, how research is, is provided and paid to. And um, many people uh, say that this will transform the, the industry, um, 
because they typically receive that research for free um and so and, and it kind of it, it separates out where all the fees are being paid and it's one of these tactics used for hiding where fees are um to a certain degree and it's about creating that transparency in the market around fees because if your pension is with a pension fund and that pension fund is paying an asset manager to manage the funds in the pension fund for you maybe it's got some shares in the uk stock market it's got shares elsewhere you want to know what that's been like there's um a chap uh, dr chris sear who works with the fca who looked at what the actual fees are paid by some of the world's largest pension funds and they had no idea how much fees they were paying when he went down and broke it broke it all down and i think this is designed to to deal with an industry that's been able to get away with that for some time and i i was looking there is a report from um cfa institute uh, about the value of these reports because initially you think well research report well how much money are we talking about Actually, we are talking about a lot of money. So they are uh, looking at values between one basis point and 20 basis points, depending on the asset class uh, that you're talking about. So if you if you look um, at uh, a billion assets under management uh, for an average of 10 basis points, you have one million uh, per annum for that. Just for that, that's the value of research, yeah? yeah. Um, th- th- these are the money we're talking nice about. Nice work if you can get it. Um, there's another one in here as well, um, the investor suitability, replaced, which puts responsibility on uh, asset managers and their distribution entities. So this would be a BlackRock and a Scalable um, that, to ensure that their customers' risk appetite um, are, are in line with the products they're buying. So it's like a, a restaurateur quizzing the customers, like, are you allergic to nuts, all this sort of stuff. Like that was always kind of there. We always put you into risk buckets before, but that's pushed way up to the asset manager now to make sure that they know that the products are being bought all the way down to the investor. They know what they're buying and was it in their risk profile. That's a big responsibility. It is, and it's and it's actually shifting liability of where the fines can actually happen as well because we've seen billions of pounds of fines being thrown at people like HSBC for not being able to fully audit and evidence the risk appetite of, of customers. Um, I've had a few of the phone calls to basically say, you definitely still want to be doing that thing and that thing and you can remember why. And I'm like, unless you can show me some paper, then no. So, uh, um, but I think all of this stuff is kind of almost a, you know, open banking is definitely on the regulatory stuff. Everything that we're seeing with MIFID 2, GDPR and everything that like, really regulation is getting like a real shot in the arm this year isn't it Uh, it, it, beginning of uh, 2018 is certainly defined by all of this regulation and it's interesting to me that um post-financial crisis it was there was a heavy talk it was almost like the the number one thing that ceos would talk about but now it's gone back to the market it's gone back to you know what's happening with this currency what's happening over here and a day-to-day event seem to have taken over i think regulation may get to the top of 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 the c-suite's agenda very very quickly it, it was an interesting point that you made though it's like you know, 2008 to now, it's taken that long to get all of this regulatory stuff through all of the iterations that it needs to, to then get to live this year, to then start sort of rectifying some of the things that we knew needed to change. Well, because with banking, the big banks are a small group. You can herd them into a room relatively easily, whereas with asset management and the whole investments market, there are so many more players and it's much more distributed. It's like, how far down do you go? Because you're getting you know, just some quite small funds. You might have people that just run a green energy fund that's uh, a, a few hundred million. Now, that sounds like a, a flippant, oh, only a few hundred million. But in contrast to, to some of these organizations, it's, it's quite 
quite small and they wouldn't have the infrastructure some of the larger ones do. Uh, I got to move us on because we've done uh, a lot on uh, kind of those different regulations, but there is uh, one last one we need to cover. Uh, submitted to FinTech Insider News by our own Alex S. Uh, credit card fee ban has backfired as consumers now face new charges and higher prices. This was in the Telegraph, Andrew. Yeah. Um, so it seems that from January 13, <laughs> consumers in UK will experience another change in their financial lives. So they will not be charged anymore uh, the 3% fee um, that the uh, firms and uh, some government bodies were charging when uh, consumers paid with cred- by so credit So this was card. the interchange fee that a merchant um, was charging or that the merchant was charged? The, the merchant would charge the end customer. Yeah. What um, the, the real cost for such a transaction would be much smaller, would be around 0.3%, uh, yeah. but they would charge three percent however um, many companies don't want to uh, give up this um, revenue stream so they say oh this would cover our costs and so on Uh, so they uh, there are a number of uh, methods listed in in the report for um, uh, avoiding this so either refusing uh, payment by credit card for certain transactions or even hmrc will refuse payment by credit card um, increasing prices for any for the goods for any method of payment. If you pay by cash, good for you. Still, you will pay a bit uh, a higher price. Hang on, HMRC will take credit card payments currently, will they? Will not oh. take any more oh. credit oh, okay. card because they cannot um, take the cost, right. and but, they but also they cannot before. charge you. Yes, they did. Wow, that would, they did. Why did I not know about that? So you could get cash back or mm. Amex points on <laughs> tax bills. <laughs> that would have been cool. Yeah, yeah. Why yes. do I always find about these? things after it's been shut down yeah, yeah. just not not cool. yeah or others will call these charges something else like service charge but they will still continue to charge oh you want to use a credit card for your grocery shopping here's here's a two percent fee over the top of it it's like what 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 hang on i just want to get some air miles i'm trying to go on holiday eventually <laughs> yeah i mean this just feels like it's impossible to enforce, isn't it? People are just going to shuffle the costs around until you're all back to normal. It's whack-a-mole with fees. Exactly. I think un- unless somebody doesn't do it, I think this is the thing. It's similar to like when uh, you know all the Australian banks were saying we're not going to use Apple Pay and then one did. Everybody else had to. Mm-hmm. So if, if there's one organisation that doesn't do it, then the rest of them won't be able to. Indeed. All right. Um, speaking of uh, fees and uh, money indeed being uh, paid, uh, there is, of course, a very well-known pay gap, but there's uh, a pay gap here about just the top to the bottom of an organization. Um, so BBC News, Fat Cat Thursday, as top bosses pay overtakes UK workers. Uh, apparently, it takes a top chief executive's just three days to earn uh, £28,758, which is uh, the UK average. Three days! It's awesome, right? It's like Fat Cat Thursday. I went on Twitter, saw this one. I thought it was going to be pictures of cats. Yeah, It turned out to be pictures of, like, you know, middle-aged sort God, of... Uh, top cats let himself go. A re- yeah, really did, yeah. <laughs> nice pinstripe suit, though. That was, that was lovely. Um, so this is, yeah, an, an average chief executive earns 120 times more than the average full-time worker, which is amazing. Did and they deliver that much value, like... 
but but I, I think in some instances probably like I think we we sometimes kind of delay um, you know it's got to be pretty damn stressful being at the top of a you know 300 400,000 person organization doing everything that they do and delivering all de- that value being a policeman deliver pulling guts after a, a murder or something it'll probably be less stressful if you're being paid the London living wage because <laughs> Yeah. Fuck it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Benedict, welcome to the podcast. Um, but no, I think it's like the idea that it takes only 32 hours. So fact, the idea of Fat Cat Thursday was um, o- with only uh, this many days into the year, the big CEOs have already made what it is that the rest of everybody else will make in the year, which is just terrible, isn't it? So uh, wouldn't it be amazing if like instead of uh, doing adverts about uh, charity work and, and being photoed with with charity work now and then there was actually something progressive like uh the ceo would cap their own income and the income of the top executives to grow only as much as the, the workforce or that they'd have some system that was transparent like because i think what people what bothers people isn't that there's uh, a reward for success a reward for success for most people is okay. Some people are still like, no, no, you can't, you can't have a reward for success. But most people don't mind that. It's how do you get to that number, and how has that been earned, and how do I end up, you know, as as a, as a grunt, and ever end up getting there? And and that lack of transparency, I think, is actually the real and issue. Also, the the perspective that there is an upside, but there should be a downside every every time. And I don't think that we Indeed. witnessed um, uh, people in such positions. Um, taking the responsibility when things went wrong um, and because we are in UK and we are exposed to financial services and this is the industry we are looking at we've seen lots of damage being done to financial services institutions and we haven't seen the downside we always see in the news very oh, few people went to jail so, um, yeah. yes the so organization I, was fined I, but I the think, indi- individuals yeah. did okay I mean um, the uh, the uh, personal liability act um, that was repealed uh, many years ago that Dave Birch always talks about uh, is something that he said it would would solve this at a stroke like if if a senior executive was made personally liable for the wrongdoing then you'd boom yes you'd need a premium because you're taking a heck of a risk if your organization does anything wrong but my goodness wouldn't that change behavior I, I mean the responsibility that anybody else would have in their job people who with who have normal jobs if they do, well, doctors, terrible if they do anything mistakes wrong, for yeah. their level they know that they lose their jobs these people don't lose their jobs and they continue to be rewarded for the risk um, it's very hard for people uh, you know who lived in the uk in in uh, austerity condition to swallow this you know it, it's not mm, how, how do you package it you well, know and, and especially when because uh, i think we're far enough away from 2008 and everything that happened to actually see where a lot of those people have kind of moved on to do and there's you know some people who were pretty much at the scene of the crime, gone on to do very bizarrely interesting things in other organizations being paid huge amounts of money. So, like, I I genuinely don't begrudge a CEO getting a lot of money because actually I think it's value return as you say Completely agree. I, I actually think it's a if you're making billions then actually people making millions is like fine you know we've already said 100 million is not a big big number but you know like 100 million salary is going to be a big number but I, we live in a world where like 
fucking pink gets paid hundreds of millions of pounds a year. Yeah, sports you know stars I mean? like, get ridiculous. Exactly. Amounts. Like, I don't know, Cristiano Ronaldo's making like six, seven hundred thousand a, a week. But broader, broader social symptom of the uh, the 0.1% and the 0.01% leaving the rest behind, which gives you uh, kind of populism, which gives you uh, strange votes. And it gives you, yes, globalization and uh, liberalization of trade policy and, and liberalization of regulation sort of did initially deliver a fantastic growth period. But to your point, though, it's like if so, if Ross McEwen could like knock in a free kick from like 40 yards out, then, you know, you don't take Cristiano Ronaldo's salary off him if they don't win the Champions League. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I kind of think there's got to be a, a standard of where salaries are. Bonuses are very different. You know, the bonuses structure in terms of actually it has to be down to the p- performance of the organization in terms of actually what's going on. Um, but I think it's, it's a really difficult one to see where actually it should go. The main thing, really, I was just sad that I didn't get to see cat pitches. So uh, if nothing else, I feel like I'm the loser. I still want to see Top Cat having put on some Christmas weight. All right, um, let's hear from our sponsors. This episode of Fintech Insider is sponsored by Huel, the nutritional powder food people. Jason and I absolutely love Huel. Often when we're super busy or literally have no time to eat, we still want to be healthy though. And Huel is really, really good for this. After the festive period of overindulgence aplenty, Huel gives me a quick, affordable alternative to grabbing yet another boring sandwich or worse, skipping a meal entirely. It only takes about 30 seconds to make. Just throw a few scoops of the Huel powder into water and you've got a tasty, nutritious meal on the go, which has all of the essential vitamins and minerals I need to keep my energy levels high and stay on top of my game. There are so many different flavors and combinations to try, including a brand new one that they've sent us this week, the world's first nutritionally complete granola. Huel are completely transparent about the nutritional information of their products, so if you want to learn more, check out their website. Even better, to get your New Year's resolution going with a bang, we've got an exclusive £10 discount code just for you, our Fintech Insider listeners. Head over to my.huel, that's H-U-E-L dot com forward slash fintech, enter your email and get a £10 discount code today. Huel have never done this one anybody before, so get in there quick and get this before it's gone. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank, and the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, and welcome back. Uh, as a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We are venture builders for the digital age. Uh, we help organizations understand the future and execute change. Uh, we're building propositions for clients big and small. So if you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com or connect with us on Twitter at 11FS team. Or you can even drop us an email at hello at 11FS.com. And also, the 11 media team who produce this lovely, lovely podcast also produce a podcast called Connection Interrupted. If you haven't checked this out, 
you have to. It's incredible. It's a weekly show about how technology is changing lives and the unique personal journeys that tech has led to. So you can check that out on iTunes today. And don't forget, Blockchain Insider as well is a weekly rundown of all things happening in blockchain and DLT with news, views, and world-class interviews. Uh, Both of these shows available on iTunes and you can subscribe. And please, please, please leave us reviews. It helps us so much. Now, on with the show. Okay, uh, first story in the second part of the show, one on Business Insider submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by our own Alex S. Apple Pay Cash won't be the death of Venmo, but I found a little-known alternative that will. Uh, so this one was on Business Insider, Benedict. Uh, what's, what's going on here? So I'm not 100% convinced that this is that newsworthy. This Business Insider reporter has managed to find a product that's been live with 30 banks for, what, six months, give or take? Anyway... So Zell is, <laughs> by the by, Business Insider, great work. Needed a headline, got a headline. Uh, so Zell is kind of supposed to be the Venmo killer in the US. It's equivalent to the interbank payment networks we have in the UK here, which haven't done very well. But Zell's off to a pretty good start. 30 banks covering Chase, Bank of America, Capital One. And they've managed to launch themselves into a network of 85 million people, which is pretty impressive given that venmo the one they set out to kill has only got like a tenth of that or something seven million 85 million people but how many of those are using it exactly so this is the metrics of within the network because they have a bank account with the 30 largest banks in the u.s versus who even has heard of it so it's this weird little app it's a standalone app that each of the banks get to customize on their own so there's kind of a lot of different quirks it works better with some banks but not with others I'm not 100% convinced by it, honestly. But, obviously, this thing is important in the US because they still haven't figured out faster payments. People are using Venmo because they can't send cash to each other in a way that is quicker than a check yet. So, a payments network like Zelle that can actually deposit cash in and out of accounts very quickly has a potential market, but it's a bit embarrassing that this is really newsworthy for the US. Yeah, it was just a great headline, really, wasn't it? We've talked about this one uh, a lot on this show, I think. And God bless you, Sam. I, I know you're over there trying to trying to change the world uh, one client at a time, but uh, I know you've got a battle on your hands. All right, shall I move us on to the next story? One in banking technology submitted to Fintech Insider News, again by uh, Alex S. Thomas Cook, uh, so the, the travel company, travel agent, and uh, I think they also operate flights, maybe? Uh, uh, they're planning to uh, launch a banking app, Andrew. Yeah. From travel to banking? <laughs> I mean, I like when uh, companies try to combine things with financial data. There is always scope for that. But what, um, so uh, briefly, what happens? Uh, Thomas Cook um, is in a partnership with a, com- with a Finnish company called Ferratum. Uh, and they want to bring to life this mobile uh, banking app uh, called Sumo. Um, with the following functionality. So they will be, uh, you, um, the customer will be able to uh, hold uh, around seven uh, currency, uh, the British pound uh, among them. And the main functionality would be to save, plan, budget for a holiday, and they would be able to book from the holiday. Then while on holiday, they can have four ATM withdrawals um, for free, and some customers can apply uh, from the app uh, for an overdraft of around, uh, 1,800 pounds, I think. 
So you get your ATM withdrawals, you get four of them for free, you've got an app that helps you save to go on holiday in the first place, and you've got an overdraft when you're there. Yeah. Uh, now, I don't know how often you go on holiday, but I, 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 I don't... Not enough. Think, Definitely not enough. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That sounded so, like a cry for help, though. <laughs> I, I, I don't see... Uh, probably I'm thinking through my own uh, experience of, of going on holiday. While I'm on holiday, ah, I have the app for holiday and I will be spending with that. Um, and you can do contactless payments and so on. I think that if they come to other parts of UK, apart from London, they would be surprised that they cannot use the holiday <laughs> the holiday uh, contactless app or something. So it, it, um, while I like the saving part for, uh, for you know, the budgeting for a holiday and so on, and it's a shame that it's not part of, a, you know, an easy functionality for any banking app. I think there's there's this this idea of goals and pots that's been around for quite some time. We saw, unfortunately, Folio, um, which is the next story, actually. um, They've gone under, and this was very much this idea that you would have a for-purpose saving capability. Um, And, and of course, Revolut and TransferWise and Monzo and even uh, a lot of the startups, they, they launch with this one specific use case or proposition that people buy into. So why not saving for a holiday? I think that the question... Questions in the execution. Um, you know, will this sumo app uh, take over the world and be a heavyweight? No, no, it, it will not. Is it a feature or is it a product? We often come back to this with these savings-related or specific multi-currency. Is it a feature of a fully-fledged bank like Monzo? Or no, they're not. They're well, not. So a there's more to bank. this, isn't there? Because there's a few features in a proposition here. There's there's not just the we're going to help you save for your holiday, it's, and you'll get some free ATMs, and you'll get an overdraft. All right, I can see why maybe aiming at sort of a, a certain working class population who are looking to go on holiday, struggling to save up. I, I I can almost see the meeting room where this idea was conceived, but it just seems. I don't know. Maybe I don't know this market well enough, and I don't know the the consumers they've talked to or the research that's gone into it. But I, I'm not so. But I, I'm I'm completely with you on this, Benedict. I, I, this feels very much connected to the last story. So well done, Laura, on that one, connecting these stories together. Um, but actually, it kind of feels like this is this is just a feature. This should be a feature in a bank that does many more things, exactly as you were saying, rather than actually being a uh, you know a small slice of a product that sits on its on its own. So will this be successful? I highly, highly, highly highly doubt it because actually it's easily replicable like for anybody who has a Revolut account or a Monzo account you can do 99% of the things that you actually want to do through this now can Thomas Cook sell banking stuff better than banks can sell saving stuff for holidays like my money will be on the, the the fintech banks who can kind of wake up and deliver this stuff to market. Yeah, so, that would uh, be offers for yeah. for the normal banking. Exactly. They it's, could give you any sort of sure. offers. And like, would would a better approach have been a Revolut or Monzo partnership with Thomas Cook that includes holiday savings pots with benefits to consumers and free you know ATM withdrawals and the, everything. The proof is in the pudding. It's like the question is the execution. Like the proposition, eh, maybe I like the idea of having a focus on what your proposition is. But how good is it? Will people pick this thing up and just have that intangible love for it? That that uh, that customer acquisition thing that's worked for Revolut, it's worked for Monzo, it's worked for many others. That thing where they just they hustle and they get customers. I think the 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 best thing about this is that it's so easy to build a bank now that Thomas Cook can do it. 
you know, literally to to your point, Benedict, I, I think on that side of things, I think the more consolidation we're probably going to see around these things and actually the a slither of a business case probably not standing up to, to sort of longer term, especially when it comes to investors needing to do things and actually seeing that competitors can replicate these things relatively straightforward, then it's kind of sad because in, in an isolation, it's a very, very smart thing that they did. Um, but um, maybe it's just not a sustainable business model to actually defend itself from uh, other people coming along, probably with a lot bigger customer base as well. Yeah, and the same goes for the likes of Plum, you know, all of these specific niche savings bots. You can't patent rounding up. No. It only takes one of the large banks to actually implement this. Well, so Lloyd's Banking Group... You would be surprised. Save the, save the change, right? <laughs> you would be it's surprised. been around for a while. As simple as it sounds to implement saving pots, it's not easy. Yeah, because, <laughs> and let me start one hour di- uh, lesson about banking architecture. Simply because uh, that object doesn't doesn't exist and you cannot put it in the core banking of the of, of, of the bank um so it, it would require some investment in something on top of uh, exactly it could be a layer banking. it could be a layer on top and it's not, doesn't have to be an accounting yet, thing but you'd be surprised you will not it see it yeah you yeah. will not see it banks didn't go for this type of strategic investment because you cannot you know just mm, cobble it together it, it they have to make it at scale for whatever mm. Mm. but it, I, I think that's the thing though it's it's when everything costs millions of pounds even to do simple things like round it up to the nearest pound um then actually it stifles innovation through making every investment a big bet doesn't it you know and that and that's the thing is actually maybe somebody will get a bargain by picking the bones of folio and actually being able to kind of pick out the stuff that sat on top of whatever it was that it was doing to make that as a service you know maybe but if you say that it's complicated to integrate that onto core infrastructure then the bones are going to be useless yeah, I, I, to i'm them. generally dubious of like acquiring something and hoping it's going to fit into your core infrastructure easily but there's um but when you say somebody it doesn't necessarily have to be a big bank i suppose um next story um bit about the chinese government's personal credit scores although i don't know if they're really credit scores as much as they're almost like social karma um it's actually a tweet uh, brought to our attention by uh, curve uh, so curve the fintech startup that helps you pay with uh, credit cards and and go back in time and change which card you paid from. Um, and it was Callum McCraig. Uh, I actually picked this up via Emily Ruhala. I think that's how you say your name. Sorry, Emily, if I've butchered that. And uh, Callum uh, said uh, he was on the train to uh, Tianjin, I believe, how you pronounce it, uh, in the Beijing train. And the automated announcement just warned us that breaking train rules will hurt our personal credit scores. So this isn't a standard news story, but it's a story we discovered from a few months back um, when you were last on the show, in fact, Benedict, that uh, regarding Chinese government giving everyone their own personal credit score based on behavior and trustworthiness. And that was on wordfinance.com. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about this one? Yeah, so I think I can't remember when I was last on here, but we were talking about how the Chinese government is providing these what they call social capital scores or social credit scores. Uh, where you're potentially suffering if you behave badly. So not only on trains, but anywhere. They were talking about things like blocking freedom of movement in terms of uh, renting a car or making it slightly more complicated to get a visa for Luxembourg, things like that. Or alternatively, having people benefit from behaving bad well. So you get a fast track visa to Singapore or whatever. I can't remember the details. This has actually slightly moved on a little bit. I don't, I can't remember the exact details, but Tencent has basically being contracted this is a this is a unique country where 
the tech giants work so closely with the government that they can do things and move so quickly in some spaces that would just make people freak. Yeah. Anyway, so they've now produced the social credit score. You can do things like um, use your Alipay account at a roadblock in certain cities in China to verify your ID. So I guess this is all just kind of linked in with their larger social credit uh, movement. I'm impressed that they're already announcing it on trains. Scary. All terrified. Like that, that as an well, announcement. Well, they can move that fast. Yeah. Terrified. For- but it's um, so, so Emily, uh, who tweeted this, so she's the China correspondent for the Washington Post, isn't she? So I guess it was a, an interesting, like, you know, freedom of speech type moment type piece. Yeah. But this, this sort of feels very, like everybody who we, and we spoke about this one extensively in the office, but this is like Black Mirror coming to life, isn't it? You know, this is the, the sort of any sort of, st- bad smile you do to somebody affecting some sort of major financial uh, thing in your in your life it's just quite terrifying really but like you say the fact that this can be implemented hand in hand between the government and the technology firms is is just terrifying uh, really. the, those two parts of the story are, are really worth highlighting again the fact that the government and the technology companies implemented it so fast wow um but that to do this black mirror stuff oh shit um i, I guess uh the the idea of a sort of credit score accessing your data like we already have black boxes in cars for reducing the price of insurance and some people will see this sort of stuff as convenience see more of my data i benefit from it because i behave good positive see more of my data take away my freedom use it to keep me in a certain system make me behave a certain way not so much so how does this become nudges and how does this manage privacy versus how does this meet the goals of a single party state that wants to increase social cohesion it, it, it's a delicate balance that i think actually every government faces if we're being really honest with it but, it's but not but just it's, china but it's um i don't mind people being punished so if somebody was basically you don't mind people being punished yeah, just let's flog them in the I'm street for that. full stop people and some people People on the tube are terrible. They do, yeah. <laughs> Most human beings on the London Underground need punishing. Or anybody who walks slowly in the street for no apparent Completely, reason. Completely, yeah. And that should affect your credit score. But, uh, but I, 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 what, I, what I was going to say, though, is like I don't mind people being punished if they're basically you know, ransacking a train, doing something weird. Like those people who eat Burger King and it's really smelly, those guys definitely need. <laughs> but like, somehow the cause and effect don't match up on this one, do they? It's like you can do something completely arbitrary and it will affect your financial capability. Like that doesn't make any sense, does I, it? I think so, there's something about the optics of this as well, like announcing it on a train. Holy creepy points, Batman. Um, and that affecting your finances. Like just what? Like, I, yes, if there are consequences for stupid behavior, I think we'd all agree with that. Um, but if and, and if there is more data that can provide benefits, provided that's wrapped in the right sort of privacy, I think we'd all be for that as well. Um, but ensuring that that's managed on behalf of the citizen is, is, is a really difficult thing. I, I think that these type of systems are very dangerous, actually, for the society because there is an assumption that they are used for good purposes or uh, the intention of the uh, government in power it, it's a good one but it's not always the case I mean if you look at China not long time ago that would have been the ideal tool <laughs> yeah. of uh, any authoritarian or whatever else, yeah. so it, it, I think it's a very dangerous thing well there's this quote here isn't it by 2020 the government hopes that the system will ensure that those keeping trust receive benefits in all respects and those breaking trust must meet with difficulty at every step it's just like this subtle menace to, to how everything 
songs phrased that I don't know man you made that last bit sound kind of evil like uh, <laughs> subtle yeah. can, can you read it nicely I would like to know how this yeah. could sound well, alright nice. let, let me do that let me flip it for you ensure that those keeping trust receive benefits in all respects and those breaking trust meet with difficulty at every step that's much that's so much scarier yeah it is so way scarier scary. yeah you're right <laughs> oh well that's an official state planning document yeah. for it you it changes but, everything yeah <laughs> Listeners, what are your thoughts on this? Um, following the tweet from yesterday, uh, bringing these scores into reality, will there be real consequences? Are there benefits to banks if they had some of this data? Would you get a better credit score? Would you? Would a bank understand you and help you achieve your goals more? Would anybody? Uh, would this help you live your life more if people could do this? We want to hear from you. Get on to fintechinsidernews.com. Um, comment on this one. Let us know your feedback. Um, and before we finish with the stories and move on to our predictions for 20. 2018. Uh, there's an and finally story that I found on TechCrunch. Uh, these psychedelic stickers blow the minds of AI, um, which first and foremost, great headline. Psychedelic stickers, love that. Blowing AI's minds, love that. Um, and then there's a picture. So this comes from TechCrunch. Um, it's about machine learning systems. They're very capable, um, but they aren't exactly smart. They lack common sense. So uh, researchers created an attack on image recognition systems. So this is the same thing that allows Facebook to recognize that there's a face there. Um, and image recognition's got better than humans. So uh, there's all kinds of things where satellites can figure out um, how busy car parks are. And there's just like deep learning on image data is is so underused. It's, it's unbelievable. But what they did is they created um, an opposite uh, like AI that was designed to mess with the AI that was trying to understand the picture. And the way it did it is by coming up with these really funky psychedelic looking stickers. So on the image they have... Um, a picture of a banana, um, which is a little bit on the sluggy side. I'll, I'll give it that. Um, and the the AI thinks that the that this is you know, it's, it's almost certain it's a banana, but it might just be a slug. There's like a 0.2 percent chance it's a slug. Then when you put the sticker on the table, it's a toaster. It's convinced this thing is a toaster, and I can sort of see where it's getting it from from the uh, from the sticker. But that's definitely not a toaster; that remains a banana. Um, so, just just something I enjoyed. It's an interesting one, isn't it? We, everybody gets so worried about AI, and like everybody's going to be losing their jobs, and it's going to take over the world. And it can be fooled by a tiny little sticker. That's, so I had this quite like sweet. Blade Runner image in my head of people like with hoodies on made out of these stickers to not be seen by governments that yes. were trying to do facial I recognition everywhere. Chinese people should just wear a sticker on the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, I don't know. That's not someone who's doing something bad in a train. Yeah. It's just a toaster. A toaster, yeah. Ah, oh, that's not a person. It, that is a, so it's yeah. like that scene in Fifth Element, negative, I am a meat popsicle. Oh, go go on with your work, meat popsicle. Like, uh, the, this for all the hype about AI, I don't want to see another report coming from another large organization saying AI is going to reduce thousands of jobs. No, proper use of data can create efficiencies. But this term around AI, yes, there are some amazing things that can be done with image recognition, but let's recognize their limits. Mm, and it might just think that a banana is a toaster. Or a slug. Mm. Uh, all right. Um, just before we end the year, we published a blog post on 11fs.com of our predictions for 2018. So do check out our blog. Uh, the three key themes we wanted to highlight were, of course, uh, open banking, small businesses, and something we call anticipatory design. Um, so, Andrew, we've talked a little bit about open banking today, but do 
you um, do you have any views as to how you would summarize your prediction for this year? My prediction for this year. Um, so I think open banking is important. I truly believe it's important, and I hope we will find ways to 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 make it work. Um, and I think I think we will see many companies which bet on um, a, a better solution from banks, um, basically losing their marbles unfortunately uh because uh, they, they 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 hope that you know banks will come forward with a good solution because yeah, uh, people raise data. venture they capital on the so assumption they, that these apis will come yeah. i'll raise venture capital and i'll yeah. have a business so i think many will be will be disappointed uh i think we have a lot to learn from a security point of view i believe that the hacking community is just mm-hmm. waiting impatiently to 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 see what's going on um, and we'll see a lot of that. Yeah, so for, for us in UK, it will be a lot about that. Bizarrely, I, I think, um, like you say, I think we, we spoke a huge amount about regulation all the way through this, really. So I think seeing what's um, what's happening in open banking and all the different regulatory angles on this, it feels like it feels like it's a real interesting opportunity for the bank, but it could be the, the sort of bear trap that causes quite a lot of them to... Uh, potentially bleed out as uh, our uh, friend earlier on was saying and grasp the nettle people all right david the next one was about small business banks uh, sme space can it become the new industry for disruption with fintech in 2018 i kind of think it always it kind of is already you know i think we've seen so much hype in um, the sort of retail space globally but actually you know everything that's sort of quietly been happening in the SME space with the the likes of um, Coconut and Tide. Mm-hmm. You know, Tide particularly have actually made some pretty big um, claims about the uh, amount of customers that they're hoovering up week on week and the, the fact that it's a pretty much open goal because there's nothing in the market doing what they're doing. Um, you know, we, got, we know the guys over in Penta in Berlin are, are doing some really interesting things as well and you know, it kind of feels like with the uh, there's the uh, remedy set up about the amount of money that RBS needs to give to all the different organizations in the uk i think it's 650 million pounds uh and there's various different people kind of applying for it i think starling have announced that they're going to go for one of them as well so i I think with all of that in the uk market and broader than that really i think we're seeing the the rise of the the sort of entrepreneurial spirit sort of blooming into it being companies not just individuals and then it feels like the sme space is just going to get hotter and hotter and hotter you know materially this really really matters as well because it's changing gdp of countries you know i think this is a if um, more companies get more support and arguably they've been getting almost no support as, as it is then um, you know more companies can be successful more money can be made in uh, individual countries and that can change quite a big deal so for a long time people have said small businesses are the lifeblood of any economy so surely focus on how small businesses manage their finances is going to be uh, of value and a, and a place for focus i think it's interesting because most people have tried to avoid the real small stage stuff you know, you kind of go to sort of big banking organizations and they want to pick out the ones that look like they're going to be corporates in 10 years time. And it's so hard to tell, you know, like with the the sort of success rate of um, small companies, really, you need to be putting something in place that's really, really efficient to manage all of these things. And then the ones that are really, really successful just moving through. Yeah. Um, so I think it's um, it's definitely going to be probably the, the banking battlefield that we see really, really changing this year. And every big organization was small at one point, and we've seen tools like Slack and others become really large companies as a result of serving small businesses that need to grow in a different way. Uh, all right, um, last one was uh, anticipatory design. Uh, Benedict, what, what does that mean? 
So this is one we, we've been talking a lot about, actually, in the research team. It's always a bit of a... Uh, trends are always a bit of a minefield, aren't they? You can get behind one and it feels like a mistake only a couple of months down the line. This is one that actually I can get a little bit more excited about because it's slightly nebulous. People haven't really figured out exactly what it is. Oh, somebody from a major consultancy will put out a report soon and make it suck. Powerful. Don't worry. PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically what they're trying to do is looking at past behavior, all of the data and interpreting it to try and predict what you want or what you would do in the future. So it's anticipating what your needs are and potentially down the line what your decisions would be. Give me an example. Examples are, I mean, they've been around for a while. Look at Nest, the thermostat. So looking at how you typically try and heat a house and then meaning making it so you never have to even touch the thermostat. Because this time of day you turn the temperature up, this time you turn it down. Oh, I figured out that that changes throughout the year, so it's got into this time of year, I'll change it for you already. Exactly, and it looks like you're not home at the moment. Why the hell am I heating this house so much? More, because I can see that in your Google Calendar or wherever else. Or I can see it because you've got the Nest app on your phone. Mm-hmm. The much bigger one that's more relevant now are the likes of Google Now. So you can see that they're using that kind of anticipatory stuff that they picked up from Nest. So now it does all this. Uh, you are an Android user, I believe. Yes, I am. <laughs> so and now is doing all of these things like serving up your flight details as you arrive at the airport. By or- the way, love that. Right. So you get an email um, about your flight information. And then the day before your flight, your phone just goes, hey, you got a flight tomorrow. Here's your terminal details. Here's the time you need to set off. And here's the best route. Yeah, and then an hour, hour later, looks like traffic's a bit bad. Probably worth amending that de- that exit time by half an hour or so. Love Google. <laughs> <laughs> I can see David grinning like a Cheshire cat right now. Pass- Go on, say pa- it. Passport's good too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, of course, it would be great to hear your thoughts uh, as listeners as well. So you can go to fintechinsidernews.com uh, and get in touch with us. I think that last one's really, really interesting. I think it's a sort of brings back slightly, but I think it's that continual trend of actually the difference between the services and the product stuff. I know we sort of talk about that a lot, but the if if actually people can start anticipating needs, they're providing services to you rather than just selling products to you. And that continual sort of view, you know, we've talked about AI through the course of this. We've talked about you know uses of data. This is like a continual thread to pull these things together to actually do good. The hard thing on this one though is. Is that actually in most organizations, it's going to be revenue destroying. Because actually, if you can anticipate that actually with all of the things that are happening from a data perspective, that somebody's going to go overdraft, uh, you know, go over the allotted overdraft and cause fines. And you actually, prevent, yeah, you're, you're preventing so yourself getting fees. Exactly. So it's it's like being able to predict the future, but really sort of figuring out whether you should or not. And, yeah, J- uh, Jason has this good anecdote about a friend of his who has a, you know, personal uh, finance manager for a high net worth individual. And they ring him up and say, looks like this is going to happen. We're going to make this change. You know, we're moving some cash around because you've got a big bill coming down the line, whatever. Introducing that... That's anticipated design at a, you know, 60k per year fee. What happens when all of the banks can do that for everyone? Mm. Theoretically, they can, should be able to now. And, and uh, Jason also talks about, he gets a week off and we talk about him all over the podcast. So we're talking about him like he's dead. Yeah. Like the, uh... <laughs> the, the virtues of digital. I love that phrase because this is a virtue of digital. People talked about digital as being like the Russian dolls. This was, I think that's yours actually, David, which is that it started as being you had the full fat human um, and only the wealthy people get humans now. And they, they can anticipate what you want because they get to know you. Their job is looking after your money. But as, this, as banks have scaled, as they've taken cost out, then it went onto a phone and then 
it went from a phone to uh, a, a laptop screen and then from a laptop screen to a mobile phone. And the service got less and less and less, but we didn't see the opportunities that digital gave us because the infrastructure sitting behind it was, was so old. I don't mind so much. Jason always gets attributed my best stuff. It's, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Did you come up with virtues of digital? I well? don't know. I can't remember. It's all a blur. There was probably a lot of beer involved. Cri- uh, Christmas happened. Who knew what happened last year? Uh, it's mixing amaretti and cheese. It's dangerous. <laughs> Uh, all right, uh, that wraps up another new show. Thank you very much, everyone. Where can people find out more about you, David? Um, all over, really. I've been taking a lot of interest on in Instagram lately. So if you want to find me, go figure out where I am on Instagram. So I think I'm David Embreer. Uh, if not, uh, Google's always a good start. Uh, what about yourself, Benedict? Uh, LinkedIn, or happy to redirect people to the Pulse Twitter handle, 11FS Pulse. If you want any research on financial services, that's the place to head to. Love it. And Andra? Me on Twitter, always on Twitter. Andra Sonia on Twitter. And uh, if by chance uh, you're going to Domain Driven Design uh, this month or Finexus in Zurich, I'll be there and very happy to talk with you. Fantastic. Uh, you would be very fortunate to talk with Andrew, as you can see from this podcast. Uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at SYTaylor, or you can drop me a line, simon at 11fs.com. Uh, don't forget, 11fs, uh, the people who bring you this podcast are a challenger consultancy. We create and launch next generation finance propositions for our clients, taking a startup approach to making a difference. Come talk to us at 11fs team on Twitter, hello at 11fs.com by email. Uh, and as always, if you like what you've heard this week please don't forget to subscribe tell a whole bunch of friends to subscribe to prod them don't let this be the all secret like let people know that we exist because if like you're, you're going to work and you're just like why don't people get this you can convert them to the true religion um and then you can leave us a review on itunes and that, i think that sounds awesome we did have a lot of reviews last year as well like i know uh, dan in the social team were putting it out but we had a hundred and two not enough more five star reviews <laughs> on itunes so um what is the rest of you doing? That's all I'm saying. So. Yeah, there's there's a lot more of you than that listening. We know that. We see stats. Um, we're, we're, of course, joking. Have a great week. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.